Hello everyone, welcome back to But Is It Healthy? Today is our second part of our coffee episode. Today we will be talking about coffee and caffeine, how they're related with those two topics. And to get us started, I have some fun facts for us. So, fun facts about caffeine and coffee. The oldest study that I found in regards to this was from 1907. This study claimed that coffee improved physical performance and holds up with today's research. Our next fun fact is that in 2008, a study was published that developed the Questionnaire of Caffeine Craving. This questionnaire was based off of the smoking system. Mad props to West and Rodriguez Davies for creating this. I wish I could read it, but $41 is more than I'm willing to spend on an article. Final fun fact, caffeine is a banned substance by the NCAA with a urinary caffeine content of 15 micrograms per milliliter being listed as a positive on your drug test. But in order to reach that level, you'd have needed to have chugged eight to nine cups of coffee within an hour before your drug test. So hopefully that's not a concern, athletes. So caffeine and coffee, hot topic. Very exciting. So much research. Honestly, I won't be able to cover all of the research that has been done on these two topics together because the amount of research is enormous and I did not ask all of the right questions. With coffee and caffeine, one of the big things that you're looking at is how much caffeine is in coffee. So before we dive in benefits and risks, let's take a look at that. Brewing coffee has many different techniques, but even before we get to brewing, you have the ability to use coffee beans roasted or unroasted. That's going to impact your caffeine content. Brewing coffee, whether you're brewing it hot or cold, will impact your caffeine content. The species of coffee you're using, whether it's Arabica or Robusta. Robusta is not a scientific name, but it is the one that is going to be on any of your coffee labels, so that's what we're calling it. And lastly, you're going to see some major impacts in the pressure you're brewing your coffee at and the length of time you're brewing it. Now, length of time, pressure, all of those things are going to depend on your brewing method. So let's take a look at some different brewing methods. The study that I'll be referencing did not look at all of the possible brewing methods of coffee, but the ones that it did look at are the Turkish method, the French press, the pour over, and espresso as far as your hot coffees go. And then you have your cold brew. Cold brew was pretty much consistent throughout. What they did differently with that was how long they brewed it for. Basically, how long did they soak the beans in cold water? The differences between these different methods are obviously those of you who drink coffee you're already familiar with, but we're going to do a quick recap anyways. Turkish coffee is where you have soaked the coffee in the hot water for a period of time, and then you just drink it. There is no straining, there's no pressing, which is how you get your French press. You're going to take the coffee, soak it in the hot water, and then press the coffee grounds down. Pour over coffee is where you're going to be putting the coffee inside your paper or cloth filter, pouring hot water over it, and just letting it drip through. This is also known as drip coffee, which is another common name for it. And lastly, you're going to have espresso, which is going to be higher pressed through your coffee beans at a higher pressure. Those are going to be your different brewing methods. The other thing is roasted versus unroasted. This is also called brown versus green. Green being your unroasted, your raw, and your brown being your roasted. So the quick breakdown for this is hot versus cold. Hot brewed coffee tended to have less caffeine than cold brew coffee overall. However, it did see a reduction in ions, an increase in antioxidants, and the highest amount of flavonoids if you're using Indian coffee. Instead, saw a much higher caffeine content, but lower in all of those other things, so you're not necessarily getting the same polyphenols. 
and Arabica seemed to do better at the high temperature and low pressure, whereas Robusta would do better at the lower temperature and higher pressure. So that's basically everything I'm going to talk about as far as coffee brewing. I apologize for the audio quality here. We're having some technical difficulties. I will do my best to resolve it. So caffeine and coffee. Really, you'd think I would have gotten to here long before now, but this is very interesting in that we have some unique goals and we have some very interesting data. So what the big goal is with caffeine is that people are looking for increased awareness, alertness, using coffee for its caffeine content when they're looking for the stimulant aspects of it. Now, the downsides of this, or at least the perceived downsides, is that it should have a negative quality on your mood and just overall not be good for you because it is a stimulant. However, we want stimulants. We're looking for that increased alertness and awareness so that it can't all be bad. Additionally, this is not a goal that I would have anticipated as far as coffee goes because it's not a goal that I personally have holding coffee and caffeine, but coffee has been used as a performance enhancer as far as weightlifting and training goes. That is why it is actually a banned substance. Now, you're not getting the major effects of it if you're not hitting those high volumes of coffee, but even lower volumes have been shown to have had an impact, so that is something worth evaluating. First, though, let's take a look at that mood and alertness. A 2018 study looked at the acute effects of caffeinated black coffee on cognition and mood. So this is important to note. A lot of studies I found actually did end up using coffee combined with carbohydrates or cream and sugar because they were trying to see how glucose and caffeine together impacted people. Now, I disqualified those studies from our research here, but note that there's a lot of research out there if you want to see what having breakfast does for you, assuming you drink coffee with your breakfast. This study didn't have that, though, so that's why I included it, in spite of its small sample size. Now, I point out the small sample size because it claims to have a large effect. I'm attributing that to the fact that they have such a small sample. But what they found was that both caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee showed an increase in alertness, which would attribute that alertness factor to not caffeine, but one of the other chemical compounds found in coffee that we kind of talked about previously on our last episode. They did, however, notice that there was a jittery impact in young women and older men when they were consuming caffeinated coffee versus decaffeinated coffee. Both caffeinated and decaf were compared with placebo in addition, and one of the other takeaways from this study that they pointed out that has come up again and again in some other studies throughout my research, I claim it's research, I read fun studies, I did not follow a specific method here, but what they found was that we shouldn't be using decaf coffee as a placebo for coffee. Decaf is still coffee, it just doesn't have caffeine. If that's to be believed, then what's the negative? Well, not a whole lot of negative as far as that goes, but there's also no benefit. So if caffeine's not what's making me feel alert, then what is it? Well, don't worry. Caffeine is still making you alert. And that's actually where we are going to transition into talking about sleep. Because caffeine on sleep quality and daytime functioning is a hot topic. That particular study came out in 2018 as well. It was a review, so not a study in and of itself, but it was a lit review, and it looked at some pretty interesting research. This study calls into question how long the half-life of caffeine actually is, and that is something worth noting that 
the half-life of the chemical and how fast you metabolize the chemical are not the same thing but it does definitely impact how long it's hanging out in your system. So this particular review came back with the idea that coffee and specifically the caffeine in coffee does promote alertness in that it reduces your overall melatonin. There are additional studies that back that up. Basically, it came back with this idea that you were more alert at night if you were drinking coffee than you would be otherwise, which is why we know the caffeine definitely does have some impact there. Now, the issue with this is that we're also looking at, they noted a potential cultural issue there. One study they included in their review talks about an Ecuador village that saw no nighttime alertness when they were drinking coffee, whereas when you look at American college students, there is a dramatic increase in alertness. Or another study talks about nurses using psychoactive stimulants, aka coffee and, and energy drinks, to stay awake during night shift. That study found that, well, shockingly enough, there are negative consequences, and that's, that's where sleep quality comes into effect here. Does coffee affect your sleep quality? Well, that depends on when you have eliminated it. How long is that half-life, actually? This review cites the half-life as being somewhere between 2 to 10 hours per one study and up to 20 hours per another study. So if we're using that whole range of the all of the times in between that they had, we're looking at somewhere between 2 to 20 hours of how long caffeine can hang out in your system, or at least how long you're noticing the effects of the caffeine in your system. They point this out that after about 20 hours of not consuming any coffee, people start to notice withdrawal symptoms, and I'm putting withdrawal symptoms in air quotes. Basically, what you're starting to notice at that point is that you're going to start getting a headache, maybe a little bit more jitteriness if you were not jittery before. This can be shortened more with tolerance because you can develop a caffeine tolerance. However, the caffeine tolerance is very bizarre. Per current data, caffeine tolerance seems to only affect your peripheral blood flow and not your cerebral blood flow, which would mean you still have the caffeine hanging out in your brain. Obviously, there's the blood-brain barrier and things of that nature, but you still have the effects going on in one region but not in the other. So I would like more research on caffeine tolerance before I'm calling this a true tolerance. And that withdrawal period is, again, arguable because it talks, one study talks about that being an eight-hour period, another talks about that being a multi-day period, and that's going to contribute to one of our risk factors later on. The other thing that this study particularly noted and was backed up by that nurse's on the night shift is that if you are using coffee to stay awake all night, recovery sleep, meaning sleep that you're trying to get during the next day, is going to be of poorer quality. But that does not mean that your overall sleep quality is going to go down necessarily. Additionally, they attempted in a particular study to see if drinking coffee one day, feeling tired and sleep deprived, and then drinking coffee the next day affected your performance. Well, it didn't necessarily affect your performance. People were still more alert when they consumed caffeinated coffee than anything else, but they were also more alert when they consumed decaf and the placebo. But 
What they did note was that you didn't think you were doing as well as you actually were doing because people tended to score higher on self-deception. <laughs> so you thought you weren't doing well because you felt tired. Great to know. Great to know. But that's kind of all we've got on the whole sleep thing. And lastly, before we go into our risks and negatives, let's talk about that caffeine effect on exercise. The effects of caffeine on resistance training was a review that came out very recently, and it was very exciting. I had a great time reading it. It had some very interesting thoughts on women's metabolism of caffeine, particularly with relation to the menstrual cycle. Once again, I would like there to be more data on this. It doesn't exist, and I am sad. Make me less sad, rich people. Somebody go fund that research, because I want to hear it. But what this particular review came back with was that all of the recent data, because this has become a hot topic in recent years, apparently, I don't weight lift, so this was not on my radar. And that's primarily what this is, resistance training, weightlifting, repetitions, things of that nature. What they noticed was that there was a positive correlation to an increase of repetitions in most of their participants. Now, again, these studies tended to be heavily men. We see that a lot in these kinds of studies, so I'm not holding that against them. But they saw an increase in reps. They saw moderate increase in loads. So you could potentially lift more often and a little bit heavier. But you had mixed results in velocity and like power, so how fast and how much strength you thrust into each lift. Now, that may be due to the limitations on not consuming caffeine in toxic quantities. <laughs> so that's where you're going to start to see those restrictions on caffeine consumption for athletes, which is going to lead us into our final issue, which is what are the big risks of caffeine? Well, so there's a rumor that there is a caffeine addiction out there in the world. Um, jury's out. Before we dive into actual addiction and the fun, joyousness that is mental illness, let's take a look at caffeinism. So, caffeinism is a complaint encompassing a variety of unpleasant mental and physical symptoms associated with the excessive caffeine consumption. Now, going back to what I have said is a moderate amount of caffeine to consume or a safe amount of caffeine to consume from my previous episode, we were talking three to five cups. I defined a cup as eight ounces. Now, for those of you on the metric system, I apologize. I went back, I listened to it. I didn't actually state this explicitly, but... 8 ounces is going to be about 236 milliliters to 237 milliliters, depending on where you want to round to. Agencies that control food quality things and quantities have decided that that's close enough to 240, so y'all are automatically getting more coffee than I'm recommending. I, I apologize. It's a small amount. It shouldn't matter too much. I don't think, but hey, who wants to run Conan's D on this? <laughs> Not me. But basically what this particular argument is, caffeinism would be jitteriness and headache being the primary symptoms, as well as mild irritability. I personally associate those symptoms with not drinking coffee, but to each their own. Now, this is important because when you start looking into caffeine addiction, the term caffeinism comes up a lot. It is being used incorrectly most often, 
I read a lot of different editorials and reviews and government fear-mongering posts about caffeine here and basically came back with, y'all don't know what you're talking about. When we actually look at caffeine addiction, however, there is a debate about what defines an addiction, and I have chosen to use the definition per our lovely DSM-5. An addiction needs to have six symptoms of the nine possible symptoms. Those symptoms are using more of or more often than intended, wanting to stop or reduce the amount consumed but being unable, neglecting responsibility in relationships, giving up previously cared about activities, inability to complete household or work-related tasks, using substance in risky settings, continued use despite known, known problems, tolerance, and withdrawal symptoms. Now, here's the thing. There are withdrawal symptoms with coffee. There are withdrawal symptoms with caffeine. And there is some degree of tolerance developed. The rest of it is person to person, so I don't want to say that is going to be a universal thing. Um, using more of or more often is very common in, I would say, caffeine consumption, but that's more because most often you don't have a good feel for how much you're consuming anyway, so you're probably drinking more coffee than you wanted to because you don't know how much you're drinking rather than I'm, oh, I have to get more. So a two to three three symptoms, which was what I'm saying most people would probably have if they drink coffee on a regular basis, would be a mild substance use disorder. That's not an addiction. An addiction needs to have six symptoms minimum. So I'm going to say that there is most likely not a caffeine addiction problem. It just there's not. Not with the variety of symptoms here, not with the Im negative impacts it should be having on your life if you're having those things. Other concerns as far as this goes, because we're talking about mental health, would be if you happen to have been diagnosed with panic disorder. Now, this is not anxiety. Anxiety refers to an overall state, whereas panic disorder refers to a specific disorder in which an individual has specific kinds of panic attacks under specific circumstances. If you have panic disorder, you should not be drinking a lot of caffeinated coffee. I'm not saying you can't have decaf, but caffeine in individuals who are, suffer from panic disorder are more likely to induce panic disorder episodes. Those are things to keep in mind. Anxiety, it's going to be hit or miss. Jittery feelings can impact your anxiety because they are similar to symptoms of anxiety, so it'll trigger your body into the response of, oh, I'm feeling anxious. You may actually not be feeling anxious, but the physical symptoms of anxiety are there, so it can potentially act as a trigger for that mental illness. I don't have a plethora of research on that. Most of it seemed to focus on the panic disorder portion, and as I said before, different things. Similar, but different, and we need to respect their differences. Those are going to be the big negatives and positives of caffeine, so let's move into our wrap-up. Is caffeinated coffee healthy for you? Well, I don't think it's hurting you if you're, A, not suffering from panic disorder, and, oh, actually, I didn't talk about cardiovascular system. Real fast, I have a couple of studies on 
caffeine and cardiovascular system, which is very much that um, you should not be consuming more than two, excuse me, you should not be consuming more than 600 milliliters of caffeine in a day. We talked about how much caffeine it takes to get to those levels, right? How much coffee it takes to get to those levels. Think back to your eight to nine cups. Don't be drinking eight to nine cups of coffee in a day. There we go. We've, we've covered our bases here. We've found the upper limit of the coffee you should be drinking, and it's that. <laughs> so don't be consuming 600 milliliters of caffeinated coffee. If, if you're consuming, or excuse me, milligrams of caffeine, not milliliters of coffee, <laughs> then, then, then yes, we would have a problem. But no, this is the amount in milligrams. So wrap-up time, for real this time. Is caffeinated coffee healthy for you? I'm going to say yes. It can produce some symptoms of increased alertness and focus. It does not seem to contribute to negative health impacts in the general population. There is a minor risk of you not being able to perform recovery sleep if you are staying up all night. So don't stay up all night and use coffee to do it. If you're staying up all night, use something else. Blue light therapy. There we go. I'm not saying that's healthy either. I don't have the research for that. It's just an alternative. But other than that, no, it's pretty much safe. Caffeinism is a potential concern. If that is you, pay attention to it. If you have panic disorder, limit yourself. Maybe switch to decaf. If you're trying to get more caffeine, I hope some of our brewing tips helped you out because, uh... I'm going to go make some coffee now. It's 9.30 at night. Have a good weekend, y'all, and rock on.